Welcome to the show. My name is James Nielsen Watt, and in this show, we interview interesting, inspiring, and successful people so you can learn the secrets to success and can play the game of life, business, health, and happiness better. And the philosophy we take here is if I'm leveling up my game, you get to level up yours as well. So get ready to listen to some inspiring people who have figured out how to have success in all areas of life, health, happiness, wealth, business. We're gonna be interviewing them in this show so that you can learn the secrets to success that they share with practical advice that you can take and use today. So if you enjoy the show, please subscribe, please leave us a review, and please share it with your friends because if I can help you and you can help others, then we can help more people together and we can all level up our game together. My guest today is a dynamic speaker and professional choreographer, Valerie Condos, also known for being the retired head coach of the seven-time NCAA champion, 22-time regional and 18-time Pac-12 champion UCLA women's gymnastics team. In her book, Life is Short, Don't Wait to Dance, Valerie shares personal stories, anecdotes, and lessons learned through her 37-year career as a dance choreographer and athletic coach. She says stories about the Olympians and athletes whom she's worked with, explains how her diagnosis with breast cancer actually turned into one of the best years of her life, and expounds on how she shaped her UCLA gymnastics program as a life skills class. Welcome to the show, Valerie. Thank you so much for coming on. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. We're having a really good dialogue uh, pre-show, and I really wanted to kind of jump into that quickly. Do you mind giving uh, our listeners a bit of a background on you and touching on what we talked about pre-show where, like you said, you weren't an expert in anything, let alone gymnastics, but you're able to lead that team. So give us your backstory. Absolutely. So I am the recently retired head coach of the UCLA women's gymnastics team. I was the head coach for 29 years and I was the assistant coach for eight years before that. And during my tenure, I just have to give you like the bragging rights right now because they lead into the fun part. So the bragging rights are led our team to seven national championships I'm inducted into the UCLA athletic hall of fame was voted the PAC 12 coach of the century. And that leads to the most fun fact is that I've never done gymnastics. (laughs) And that's what James and I were talking about was I was asked to be the head coach after I'd been there uh, for, as an assistant coach for eight years as their choreographer, mind you, I wasn't like a gymnastics coach. I was their dance coach and their choreographer for the gymnastics team. And when I accepted the head coaching job, I learned very, very quickly that not only did I know nothing about gymnastics, but more importantly, because I could hire people, right, to, to do the things that I didn't know how to do, which was the gymnastics part of it. But I was the head coach. And I, I was a ballet dancer my whole life. I grew up on stage. I knew nothing about what a healthy team culture looked like. And so James was saying earlier in our our conversation that, you know, I didn't know as much as I didn't know anything. (laughs) So when I took the head coaching job, the only thing that I knew how to do that I thought was prudent was to mimic other head coaches who had been successful. This was 1989. This was the time where coaches, the majority of them were authoritative, dictatorial, dogmatic, bullish, oftentimes mean-spirited, that, that grr, win-at-all-cost mentality. 
which I didn't grow up in, but I was a head coach. So I just thought I would just mimic other head coaches. And I mimicked them very well. And we did our, we, our team did very poorly. We didn't even make it to the national championships. And, um, I, that's when I had my big awakening was how was I going to change? I had, I had to do something different or resign. So a lot of people listening and including myself, and so I'm actually really excited to, to talk about this is we lead people, right? We either have families, right? I've got two young boys under, uh, two of them under, under three. I've got team members in both my companies and most people listening to this will have something of that. And so we're all leading people, even, you know, you can arguably say leading yourself, right? But I suppose my first question is, how do you go about leading people to be, and, and I, you know, maybe I'm getting this wrong off, off from the start, but self-accountable enough to pursue excellence and, and, and be better and, and do better, et cetera. Is this something that, that you teach people? Is this something that you, you lead them with? Do you lead by example? Talk to me about that because to go from losing and being the hard ass to uh, changing and then winning, you know, what was the, the main thing that changed? It's the same people, right? There were there were a few main things that changed. One of the big things was I had to redefine success. And as a coach, success is winning. Coaches are hired to win. Yeah. But that did not resonate with me. And so if I was going to keep this job, I had to redefine success. And it was very clear to me what success was and what my why became. And that wasn't about winning national championships. It was the fact, and to this day, I feel that sport, especially team sport, is one of the greatest masterclasses in teaching really, really tough life lessons that one does not learn in the classroom. And so I was going to take, I had 22 student athletes on our team, young women. I was going to fortify each and every one of them uniquely to their talents and their gifts. And I was going to help them become champions in life that are going to go out and make the world a better place through sport. Mm. And so that became my definition of success wasn't winning national championships. It was developing this culture of superheroes, basically. And then the second thing that I did was I understood very quickly and, and observing other coaches and other leaders, not just in athletics, but in business and such, even parenting, that I think a lot of leaders, parents, feel that in order to lead effectively, they're supposed to have all the answers. And nobody can have all the answers. So when you don't have all the answers, you just posture and you make stuff up and you're not authentic. And I sense that time and fully believe now that the best leaders are the ones that set the standards, you set the goals, you define success. What does success look like? And in my opinion, success should be things that are 100% in your control. So for us, success was going to be at the end of the season, leaving the national championship without any regrets, no matter where we were standing on the podium. Define that success and then model the behavior that you would like to see from those people whom you are leading. So for me, I was, I felt it was important to model the behavior 
for our student, not just our student athletes, but for my assistant coaches as well. And that meant model what it's like to come in to the gym every day, appreciative, grateful, enthusiastic, and excited about working really, really hard. Model the behavior of what it looks like to have a setback, but to recover quickly. And in sport, we we call that shortening the time between failure and recovery. And the great athletes are the ones that don't have the pity party. They don't drop their heads. They don't apologize incessantly. They shorten the period between failure and recovery. Model that behavior. Most importantly, model humility, model vulnerability, model what a sincere apology sounds and feels like. I think those are the greatest leaders. Those are the greatest strengths of characteristics. It's not your acumen. It's, it's what they used to call soft skills. I think they're called life skills now, but all of those of communication and, and I think one of the most important skills to hone until the day we die is listening, the art of listening. Something amazing that, as you said, this is kind of articulated well for me is, is with our sons, the speed at which my son can bounce back from meltdown and not processing to daddy, I'm sorry for doing this. I love you. And then he comes to me and this is a two-year-old. The other day, I think he, he broke something or threw something or did something like that. And, you know, fast forward, we had a conversation about it. We talked about it and, and he left. And I said, Manan, when you're ready, you can come back to me and, and talk to me. I want to know what you're feeling. He went and played or whatever for five minutes. He came back and he said, Daddy, Milan's feeling angry for this. And he told me, I said, okay, what else are you feeling? He said, I'm feeling sad. And he told me. And then I said, okay. And he said, Daddy, I'm sorry. And then he gave me a hug. As a two-year-old, which I've worked with a lot of kids and I, I don't tend to see that a lot. And what me and my wife have kind of been doing is trying to exactly what you said, lead and model the behavior, which is no matter what, safety in what I'm feeling, expression, and we're still a unit. You're not bad. Your actions just hurt somebody. And what this has allowed him to do is instead of hanging on to this thing and pity party, or as you put it, right, is to bounce back and go, you know what? And then switch. So I think that all of us, we, we fear so much not knowing that we do. We posture. We have to be seen as perfect and good and it's not authentic. And, and even if somebody can't, you know, consciously tell they can subconsciously tell so you said something amazing about the the time between i'm just going to say failure and and bouncing Mm -hmm. back what have you seen in team members let's just say team members for, for the sake of the argument in terms of qualities that they possess or your ability to to guide them to possess that means that they can bounce back faster between those mm-hmm. points because you're right mm-hmm. lingering in it is cancerous it is cancer. Yeah. Um, it is, uh, it's being able to make a mistake and process it as information versus taking it personally. And in our sport of gymnastics, it's just this perfect storm of a, you're in a sport based on perfection, the perfect 10. You are coached the, ma- the majority of the most winningest. I'm not going to say the most successful, but, but the winningest coaches have come from the Eastern European countries and they are often brutal. And so the gymnasts that we have come to college, 
They have no voice. They've been stripped of their identity. And they're actually afraid to respond because they think they're going to get in trouble. And so it is, as you said, giving that safe space for them to make mistakes and to keep reminding them, you know, if, they, if I'm coaching balance beam and they fall off the beam and immediately their heads go down and their posture slumps and they're having, this not just a pity party, but it is all of this PTSD of I'm not worthy anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm not good. I'm not enough. And to help them talk through that and process it and say, okay, time out. Hold on. You fell off the beam. You didn't you lose the cure for cancer. Okay. You fell off the beam. So what do you want to do differently next time you get back up the beam? And you get them to verbalize it and talk about it and help them to con- just continue to realize that them making a mistake is is the mistake. It's not them. They're not a bad person. Don't take it personally. And I think that so many times coaches who coach from their egos are the ones that take the mistakes that their athletes make and and the coaches make it personal. And it's the same thing with parenting. One of the best parenting books I've read is from Dr. Shafali and it's called The Conscious Parent. And she talks about the fact that every time a parent says, you know, oh, you got an A? Oh, good job. Oh, you won a championship? Oh, good job. Oh, you scored the most points in soccer? Oh, good job. It's not about the kid. It's about them and their egos. And I think it's, it's hard not to leave from your ego. Because like when I'm on a competition floor, A, my innate competitiveness kicks in. And plus, you know, I want people to think I'm a great coach. And it's, it's, it's very difficult, but it's, it's, once again, it's a skill to get the ego out of the way and to come back to what is our main goal? What is our definition of success? And how can I best be the part of making sure that we leave this competition without any regrets? I think that um, the mind twist is that what gets you to win is not focusing on what you think you need to do to win and going after winning. The irony is, is it's doing the fundamentals well. It's about sticking together as a team, et cetera, et cetera. Like I think it was, there was a, there was an interview with Kobe Bryant who said something. They said, you, you know, you excited. Are you, you know, you just won this, whatever. And he's like, no. And they said, well, why not? He goes, job's not done. And, you know, I'm butchering the, 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 the soundbite there, but he was saying the job's not done because we, we're not at the end. So we're going through the process. We're going through the process. I think a lot of people, we, we like the idea of, it's, it's like the lottery ticket, right? You buy a lottery ticket, you win, you feel great because I picked the right numbers. But winning and consistency of, of winning, getting the outcome is not about the outcome. It's about the process and how well you execute on, on the process. And so if more of us can detach from the winning, I think more of us would have success because like you said, the most winningest teams versus the most successful. So there's that whole you know, psychology game. But, but even if we are just to focus on the winning, right? Maybe we're in business and the goal is to make more money. Focusing on how do we make money is not the way to make money. Right. Can you right. talk to that a little bit? Yeah. And you just name dropped Kobe Bryant. So I'm picking up on that. I was very, very fortunate to have a one-on-one with Kobe probably two years now, a few months before he passed. And um, one of our student athletes, Caitlin Ohashi, had just gone viral with her floratine and has had over 180 million views now. And the 
what everyone around the globe has shared with me and with Caitlin is that her Floratune is pure joy. And Kobe came in and we sat down, we're talking about um, some things. And he says to me, I don't know whether I should be upset with you or whether I should hug you. And I said, why? He says, because I have three, he didn't have his fourth daughter at the time. He said, I have three daughters. And he goes, we have got Caitlin Ohashi's Floratine on instant replay, like for the last two weeks straight. I'm like, well, you're welcome. And I said, why do they like it? And he said, because they see her doing really hard gymnastics with a ton of joy. And Kobe and I had an hour conversation about the importance of bringing joy to everything you do in life. Not happy, but joy. Happiness is like external, in my opinion. Happiness is like, oh, someone told me my hair looks good today. Yay, I'm happy. Joy is a deep internal thing that one feels and one grows through really, really hard work, but bringing enthusiasm to that hard work. My mentor, the great John Wooden, um, his pyramid of success is 15 different blocks that lead up to competitive greatness. But the pillars, the cornerstones of his pyramid are enthusiasm and industriousness, industriousness, hard work and joy. And Kobe said, you know what? My joy is getting up at 4.30 in the morning. He goes, I'm not a morning person. I don't like to get up at 4.30 in the morning. He says, but my joy comes from getting up every morning and getting in two practices before the whole rest of the team comes in because I know I've got the edge. And regardless of how the game goes that night, nobody can take away that sense of pride and joy that I have earned. And I think that's something really important to teach our children to have to learn how to have fun at the thing, especially the things that they don't like to do. Because it's easy to have fun at the things that you're good at, but the stuff that you suck at, how can you figure out how to bring joy to that process? And if parents could do that, my my mom did that with me studying for math because I am horrible at math. And she would draw it out, the equations out in pictures for me because I'm very visual, creative. She would draw the math assignment out in pictures. And I had such a ball. I actually did well in that math class. And I didn't dread it. You said two things that I loved. One uh, was how Kobe's focusing on what he can control. Mm -hmm. can't control the outcome of the game because there's multiple variables that he doesn't have control over. How his team shows up, where the ball happens to bounce to, you know, am I going to slip today on a little bit of, you know, water patch or whatever? Like there's so many variables, but what he has got control over is what he can do leading up mm-hmm. to that moment. And it culminates in, in, in the game. The game is the tip. It's everything else that went right. into it. People, right. uh, you know, think that, that, that the game's the important part, but it's the, the entire process no. before it's the preparation. What do they say? Preparation meets opportunity, et cetera. So, right. There's that. And then the second thing you said is about joy. I really, really like that. People uh, would still do look at me and wonder, you know, what am I doing? Why am I doing it? James, why are you working so hard on this? And shouldn't you have a break and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, what are you talking about? This is, is, (laughs) I don't have to have a break from my life. I actually enjoy this. And that's what makes us keep going forward. Without it, it just sucks. 
I was, I mean, I can honestly tell you, I enjoyed every single day of my career as the head coach. And think about it. I coached young women, girls, drama central, right? But I enjoyed the challenge of figuring it out and helping them figure out how to be better humans, better teammates, and not go to mean girl. And I had, but later on towards the end of my coaching career, I started branching out. I started doing a lot of speaking engagements. I wrote a book. I am producing a few theater shows. And somebody said to me almost the same thing that you're talking about. They said, you're just doing way too much. Like, and I looked at him and I said, nobody tells JLo she does way too much just because she has people and I don't have people, but nobody's telling her she's doing too much. And nothing I'm doing is I'm dreading nothing. I love it all. And I, and when I retired, I said, I want to be really, 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 really challenged. And I want to be really, really inspired. Yeah. I think that, um, uh, you know, a lot of the, the system to speak, speak about kids a little bit is, is geared towards just learning it the hard way. You know, we go to school, mm-hmm. you're going to sit here, you're going to learn math, you're going to do this, you're going to do that. And when you look at the, the kids who have the joy in it, you tend to do the things that you enjoy and that you typically enjoy them because you're good at them. And then through the combination of those, you do well, which feeds it further, which is why kids who like math and were good at it, like me, loved math class because I was good at it and I liked mm-hmm. it and they were, they were intertwined. But finding uh, how you can help your child or mm-hmm. your team members to find the joy in the activities that they don't otherwise enjoy is the secret source. Well, I've noticed that with my, mm-hmm. with my son, like helping him to enjoy the process is why he will learn a lot. Whenever he's, since he was young, it was always, what can you see? And this is a bird and the bird does this and, and he's enjoyed it. And so now he's this absolute chatterbox that talks like a four-year-old um, because he's enjoyed the experience of interacting. And, and I say this, you know, uh, this is by no means a, a, a bragging thing. I'm just making a point here that in, in the same context, it's like, well, I want my kid to talk better, right? And you go, well, how fun has it been for your child to explore the talking in, in this example? Thinking about our teams, it's like, if I want my team member to do better, what I'm hearing for you is how do I help my team member to see the joy in what they're doing as part mm-hmm. of the process rather than just the outcome that they're pursuing? Um, What's your advice around people doing that? Well, I think that the biggest thing is to give people, especially if you're a parent, give your child the safe space to make mistakes. And I love talking with young children because I love to share with them the fact that, you know what, the concept of failure doesn't exist. And I know there's all this stuff written on the fear of failure and everything, But let me explain to you why I don't believe in the word failure. It's because when you make a mistake and you learn from it, what you did well and what you didn't do well and what you want to do better next time to have a different result. If you've learned something, regardless of how small it is, that's going to take you one step closer to your goal. How can that be failure? It can't because you're moving the needle forward. And so I think with parents, I think it's so, so, so important to understand your children are going to make more mistakes than they do things right. And to not label them, label it as a failure. It's not a failure. 
It's an opportunity to grow, to learn and to grow. So if you said, I remember one time my mom asked me to do clean the kitchen and I got a snooty face and I wiggled my butt as I walked away because I was just disgusted that she had the audacity to ask me to clean the kitchen. And she says, time out, come here. And I come downstairs. And instead of just saying, you know, you little brat, get upstairs and I'm giving you a timeout. I wouldn't have learned anything from that. She said, and she explained it to me, you know, why are you copping an attitude? Because I've asked you to help around the house that you live in. Like we all eat dishes. We all eat food here. Why can't you help out? All I asked you to do was help out. I didn't say you're in trouble cleaning the kitchen. I asked you to help out. So it was a learning experience for me. And I wasn't belittled. I wasn't demeaned. I wasn't bullied. She didn't come across as a dictator. And I learned something from the process. So the next time I was asked to do something, I actually had the wherewithal to pause and go, why wouldn't I want to help out? Instead of creating this this situation that built resentment and then you're just wanting to say no for the sake of it to get your own control back because control has been taken from you because you're being dictated to do stuff. 100% see that a lot with, with kids, but I think that we, you know, we don't consider it in terms of the people we have working with us or, or for us and, and that uh, everything is an opportunity uh, to, to improve forward. Mm-hmm. And, and like you said, right, failure is the cutoff point. If, if, it's, if it's failure, then, then you just stop. It's just cut off and you, you go backwards. If it's a learning mm-hmm. opportunity, then I'm, I'm adapting and I'm moving forward. And there's all the cliches, right, like around the stuff. But the irony is that it's, it's, in this case, it's just so true and we just need to live it more. Um, for ourselves, I think that what I'm getting from you is is that we need to embody all of this ourselves, and then be the facilitator of the people that we have around us. Because what I'm getting from your story is, I can't do a cartwheel. How am I going to head coach gymnasts? And instead of being the best or better than them and showing them the tactic, you've facilitated their their learning and, and joy and willingness to grow themselves that they find their way through it with your support rather than no this is how you do it you must do this you must do that mm-hmm. is that a fair summary well the research the perfect summary because the research shows us that the best way for people to learn something is to give them an instruction and then let them take five to seven turns and let them continue to make mistakes or quote unquote fail and let them figure it out. And when you coach from a place of your ego or you parent from a place of your ego, you're constantly dictating what they should do. And you're actually shackling the person from learning. And so because I knew nothing, (laughs) that was one of my greatest gifts because as my athlete's coming off balance beam and she just fell on a back handspring backflip, And she looks at me and goes, you know, what did I do wrong? I have absolutely no idea what she did wrong, but I'm going to help you figure it out. And so I would just ask her question after question. What were you thinking when you went up there? What have you learned? Like when you break down the skill to do it properly. And then finally she'll get to the point where she'll say, I just, I just think that I'm so afraid of falling that I wasn't really jumping out of my legs. Great. Okay. So let's not worry about falling. I don't care if you fall and jump out of your legs. And imagine like, just think about that process for that athlete in that moment, how much she learned versus her getting off the beam and me saying, jump through your legs. 
And it's the same thing with, with children, with two-year-olds, you know, but you know what, you know why we don't do it is because it takes a lot of patience and we're in this fast paced world and it's so much quicker to dictate change than to motivate change. And in order to motivate change, you have to explain. And so, you know, when people ask me my, I don't know if you've seen my TED talk, but the whole TED talk begs the question is all winning success. And the fact that we live in a win at all cost culture across the board globally that we humans have created. And why have we created this win at all cost culture? And part of it is because it's quicker and easier to just bark out orders. And it's quicker and easier to discipline than to motivate because motivating takes time. You're, you're building a house on no foundations though because mm-hmm. you can get to a, a shorter-term victory place faster through dictating. Like if there's a fire, I'm going to tell my kids, this is the door you go out of. We jump out of this window. We do this. We do this. Uh, because probably sitting there and saying, hey, buddy, you know, where do you think we should go while we're burning to death may not be practical. But the reality is that in, in most things, I don't think that applies. And I think that we just take that approach, like you said, because it's easier and we're lazy. Let's be honest. I agree. It's easier to parent like that I agree. than it is to actually sit and listen and motivate and support. But you know what? The house on fire, Jim, not the window thing scenario. What I learned from coaching was that when I took the time to explain myself to our team and they understand why, they understood why I was making these decisions, then you have buy-in. And if you do that enough, you, you develop trust. So when there were times when I had to say, go jump out the window, they wouldn't flinch, they wouldn't balk, and they trusted that my intention was pure because I had proven that and I'd built that trust all along. And I, I imagine the same thing with parenting is that if you take the time to explain to your child why this is important, and then you get into a situation where you give them the cross eye and you give, and you give them that look, you know, and they get it. It's because you've built the trust in the relationship. And, and we all know this when change and when we do things differently, when that comes from a place of motivation, and inspiration, it's far more grounding in you. And it comes from a place that is life altering. So I have a great example of that. I stopped dancing professionally when I was 22 years old. I moved to Los Angeles. Everybody there is a workout theme. Like everybody loves to jog. And it's like, I hate to jog. So for 30 something years, I kept trying different things because I live in LA. I'm supposed to like working out. I don't like working out. I don't want to sweat. I just, I don't enjoy it. But I kept telling myself, I kept dictating, I had to do it. I never did it. I may do it once or twice. I never did it. Then I got breast cancer. And my doctor said to me, do you work out? And I go, yeah, consistently once every six months. And she says, you need to find something, preferably resistant training, you need to find something and you need to do it consistently because you're going to be going through chemotherapy and we need your body as strong as possible. Well, there was my motivation. Did I need any more motivation than that? No. So I found Pilates and this was seven years ago. I literally take eight Pilates classes a week because my motivation is so strong. I want to be strong. 
that's my motivation. I would tell patients the same thing when I was in practice. It's don't try and exercise because you're not going to do it. Instead, find an activity that is exercise that you enjoy. And what I'm hearing from you is motivation gets you going and the joy keeps you going. Motivation can sometimes be fleeting. And so for me, it's like there needs to be solid reasons, uh, you know, why I must. And this is a Tony Robbins thing for me, right? Like having reasons why I must and then finding the joy in the process. Gary Vaynerchuk Mm -hmm. talks a lot about this, enjoying the process. He wants to buy the the New York Jets. And and his whole thing is that the saddest day in his life will be when he buys the Jets because his process is now over. Uh, And I think that (laughs) if we can can, um, pursue things, and experience joy in the process and the growth, uh, we we have more success than just the winning at the end. But it takes a conscious effort to 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 shift that perspective. Like back to kids, um, what are you what are you doing it for with the child? Is it to to reflect right. you? Is it to yeah. get them into a good school? Who's that for? Yeah, it's not for them because yeah. they're going to have huge debt and probably not get a job. It's for you. So if we yeah. detach from it and say, well, what's this for? I'm raising this little person. That's a big thing that me and my wife did was this is a little person, not my okay. child. He's not mine, right? I'm currently caring for him, and, but, but he's not mine. And through doing that, and it, you, have to, you have to constantly be vigilant because the, the default is to just dictate. And to, but if you're conscious of your reasons why, mm-hmm. you're able to take your own learnings from opportunities that present when there's difficulties, et cetera, and go, what am I going to do different? So I want to, I want to finish up on this in, in terms of team. I'm saying this out loud because I feel like that this is for me, but I also feel like a lot of people listening to this will come to the same conclusion. I understand that I need to lead my team. I understand that I need to work on me and be present and facilitate and empathetic. And, you know, uh, like I wrote down here, set standards and goals and model behavior. But I also need a a result now. And so for me, and I'd, I'd love you to speak on this for a little bit, but for me, it's like, I may need a result now because I hadn't done the actions previously. So it's not that I go, that's great, but give me the tactic. It's that's great. So I'm going to begin with this now and understand that it's going to take time and it's going to be a process to build that with my team. And I have to delay gratification uh, of the result or the outcome by understanding that where I am now is a reflection of what I have or haven't done previously. Can you speak to that? Because I feel like culturally we, mm-hmm. we get it, but then we also have not done it for so long that we need the result now. And it's like, cool, but what's the tactic to get my team to do good? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, first of all, preparing to fail, failing, failing to prepare is preparing to fail. John Wooden said that. I teach a course at UCLA on uh, transformative coaching and leadership. And we study a different coach every single week and the commonalities of those coaches. And one of the biggest commonalities is their maniacal attention to detail in preparation. So that when you are on the battlefield, quote unquote, then you're able to make tactical decisions like that. Because as we all know, we plan for plan A, but plan A never ever happens in life. So as long as you plan for plan A, B, C, D, and E, then you're going to be able to shift when adversity hits. And I feel that as a leader, it is so vitally important to set the ultimate goal, which is fun, to to work toward. So for us, it's the national championship. The Olympics is a gold medal or a medal, whatever that is. And then to put that up on the shelf, we know that's the ultimate goal, okay? 
So now let's talk about, I would imagine that none of those goals are 100% in your control. So now let's talk about a goal that is 100% in our control as a team. And we would do that with our team every day. In fact, every single day, we would line them up for workout at 7.45 in the morning. I would go over the goal because we usually had a competition on the weekend. So our goal is, is not to win the meet because that's out of our control because we're judged in our sport by human beings. So our goal is, you know, we, we compete 24 routines. Last meet, we hit 18 out of 24 routines. So what's going to be the goal? And then you get the buy-in. You get them to talk, safe space. And someone will say, 24 for 24. And it's like, another girl will say, we're not there yet. You know, that's not a realistic goal, a challenging but realistic goal. That's 100% in our control. And I think that is so, so, so important for, for parenting, for kids, for teams, for everything. Because then it's like me in my math class, my brother literally is a rocket scientist. He literally builds spaceships. So his math skills are off the charts. Math to me is Chinese. I still don't understand how numbers and squiggly things mean anything in this world. But if my mom said that I had to get an A, because I got A's in history and English, well, you should get an A in math. If she said that, I would be so, I would feel so much stress. I would shut down. She, she would say, can we just figure out how to pass math? <laughs> I'm like, I can do that. <laughs> so I think the achievable goals, but they have to be high enough that it is a challenge because that's where the fun comes in. Achieving goals that are easy is not fun. And then you got to celebrate the small victories. You have to celebrate. Last meet, we hit 18 out of 24 routines. Our goal was to hit 21. And this meet, we hit 19 or 20. Well, we did better than last time. Okay, here we go. Let's etch and sketch. Let's etch and sketch and let's set a new goal. Yeah, I love that. Celebrating the, the small wins is, is definitely something that uh, I'm always encouraging my clients to do because it's you're trying to sort of gamify winning. Like so many times we just hang out for the big wins that we think deserve celebrating and we forget that this entire thing is a game and you can have as much fun as you want because you can choose to if you wish enjoy stuff you can make anything enjoyable you can celebrate anything and that that ability to find the fun the joy the the success in anything i think is a is a massive part of your ability to achieve success because the you know and again we're going round and round with what you call success but let's say the big goal because it's the consistency of the small ones that can compound and then you get the big one, but you can't do that if you're not finding joy and you're not, you know what I mean? So it's like, mm -hmm. it's, it's a whole thing. And I think you're right. Yeah, sure. Set a direction, but let's get back to, to granularly, you know, where am I finding joy? What are the wins that are having that I have control over that are fun mm -hmm. and stretched enough, but not, you know, so big that I can't achieve them. And then I get disheartened and play the psychology mm -hmm. game because if you don't set yourself mm -hmm. up to win, uh, you're going to hate it and you're going to quit. If you had to get an A in math, you probably would have got Bs in other subjects because you would have inappropriately distributed resources and got stressed and blah, blah, blah. So, you, you know, you end up overall less happy. So, yeah. Right. I've 
done a lot of research on children, especially in sports. And the majority of kids, boys and girls, will quit sports before the age of 11. And when they're interviewed as to why, they say the stress that, that's put on them by the parents and their coaches is too much. And, you know, I think that it's obvious that the only time human beings really, really change is through education. And if we want to change this win at all cost culture that we've all created, we need to educate and we need to educate parents and we need to educate coaches and mentors. And the statistics sadly show worldwide that young adults, children are reporting more depression, anxiety, stress, and sadly suicide than ever before in our history. And that's not on them. That's on us. And so what we're doing, what we've done in the past, okay, it may, you may say it worked because your child got into a, a, the proper college or your child is making six figures and a salary, but at what cost? At what emotional cost? You look at professional athletes. You know, you look at Michael Phelps with the documentary, The Weight of Gold. You look at, I just finished the tour with Simone Biles. You look at what cost. And so that has got to be, as a parent, one of your top priorities is to keep asking yourself, yes, I want my child to succeed, but at what cost? And if they are developing behaviors of stress and depression, you need to change your ways and you need to get help from somewhere. If I quit because of stress and I never achieve what I w wanted to in sports and I become an adult and my kid starts doing sports and I start pressuring my kid to win because I'm living through them because I never won and I just repeat the cycle, it's counterproductive. I think that mm -hmm. it happens by, by breaking that cycle and, and realizing that we are not, re we are, I was going to say we're not responsible. We are not, our child's success and how we define it is not our responsibility to define their success. It's to give mm -hmm. them the, the tools and, uh, and the support to be able to define that themselves. And that's what's mm -hmm. going to breed happiness. Mm -hmm. Doing things that you don't want to do is, is a recipe for, for unhappiness and feeling pressure. Right. And yet along that line, when you set, that's why I think it's really important to have communication. So when you have a discussion with your children or your team and you say, this is how we're going to find success and this is what our goal is going to be, there's always going to be a part of it and things that we don't want to do. Like as a dancer, I hated to stretch. I'm not flexible. And it never felt like stretching. It felt like a ripping. But my mom would say, if you're going to dance, which you love to dance, right? I'm like, yeah. She says, you're going to need to put in some extra effort in stretching because it doesn't come naturally for you. And so she explained it again. She motivated it. And then I don't think I ever found joy in stretching. <laughs> But I understood why it was important and it wasn't detrimental. You understood how it fit into to the process of what you were trying to mm -hmm. achieve. Mm -hmm. So you had reasons behind doing it, mm -hmm. 100%. I love that. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. where, can, where can our audience connect with you uh, more online and find out about your book and things? Thank you. Thank you, James. Um, my website is officialmissbell.com. I don't do a lot on social media these days, but I do have a website and I do have my book. If anybody is interested in purchasing Life is Short, Don't Wait to Dance. It's all about how a dancer choreographer became a seven-time NCAA champion. It's on my website. And so is some swag, some 
Am I wearing it? Oh, I am wearing it. Time out. Here, if you can see it. Life is short. Don't wait to dance. It's really cool. And I'm, the reason I'm talking to you about my swag and my book is because anything you buy from my website, 100% of the profits go to helping a community outside of Austin, Texas that rescues girls from sex trafficking. And so I do a lot of work with them and give them all my profits of everything. So uh, the refuge. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, yeah. I um, uh, was part of supporting and, and still do. Um, I think it's, I believe it was under Operation Underground Railroad, which does something similar in, in yes. uh, other countries. Yes. It's, it's maybe not a topic for today, but a disgusting yes. thing that needs to, to change. Yeah. And, and I'm massively supportive yeah. of that. So everyone needs to go check that out. Yeah. Um, so holiday gifts, people, holiday gifts, go to officialmissbell.com, holiday gifts, and go help these young girls. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you. Today was very insightful for myself. And I know that people got a lot of value from it. So thank you so much. Thank you, James. I mean, considering that you and I just met, I feel like we could talk for another six hours. Let's go get a glass of wine and have another conversation. So thank you so much. Thank you everybody for listening. Uh, Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Everything shared will be in the description of the episode so you can go and grab that. Now, if you enjoyed the show and you want to listen to more, please subscribe because every week we're releasing new episodes with inspiring people, successful people, so you can level up your game. So subscribe and also leave us a review. We'd love to hear feedback about the show and your thoughts and opinions there as well. Now, if you want to have more success, whether it's in your life, whether it's in your business, we run live trainings every single week where you can get access to me to coach you through everything from health, wealth, success, business, We're doing topics on all things that you need to live a better, more inspired and successful life. Live trainings every single week. Just visit jamesnielsenwatt.com forward slash live and you can get access to that now. There's also a ton of resources that you get for just listening to the show. All of that will be in the description. So if you are watching this on YouTube, check the description. If you're listening to this episode, check the description. We've got a load of resources there for you to have more success in your life, whether it's relationships, investing, or in business. I'll see you on the next episode. And as always, subscribe, leave a review, and tell your friends because there's somebody else that needs to be hearing this, and maybe you're their opportunity to help them level up their game.